Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Wendy. I'm from the Bonavelli Life Group. I'll be doing the Bible reading today. Uh, it's from Luke 23, uh, verse 32 to 47. Two other men, bought criminals, were also led out with him to, the ex- to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was, there, there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hauled, insulted him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has, nothing, has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and the darkness came over and the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn into, into two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what has happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. This is the word of God. What was that? And what's it doing in church? There was a song called Start Again by the band One Republic. Those are the lyrics you have on your seat, so please do have a look. Uh, We're starting the year with a series called Anthems of the Age. And in this series, what we do is we take popular songs from our culture and we put them in dialogue with the Christian faith. So every week for the next three weeks, we're going to be asking the question, what is the message of this song? What's the heartbeat? Why is it so popular? And then we're going to be asking, what does the Christian message have to say in response? And I hope you're going to see by the end of the three weeks, whether you are decided or undecided, I hope the one thing you'll be clear on is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is relevant. It's relevant to all of life, and it's relevant to your life. Now, first question we have to answer, does this song, Start Again, qualify as an anthem of the age? Last time I checked, it had over 37 million views on YouTube, so I think that's a yes, that's a tick. Then there's also the fact that One Republic is a major mouthpiece for popular culture. So they've won a ton of awards themselves, but they've also written massive hits for massive artists like Taylor Swift, um, like Beyonce, like Adele. So there's no doubt about it. They are influencers. More than anything, this song qualifies as an anthem of the age because it touches a nerve. It touches a nerve. It speaks to something in us, 
in us as individuals and in us as a society. I think we can see that best in the response comments that were posted after the video. So they should be behind me on the screen. Let me just read you a couple, just a few. The first, whenever, whenever I listen to this, I get taken back through all the bad things and mistakes in my life. I wish I could go back to the beginning and start it all again. Because now I'm older, I'm feeling the weight and consequences of all that has happened in my life. All that has happened to me and all that I've done. Next comment. I didn't expect this song to hit nearly as hard as it just did. I feel like he just tore me open and read the words imprinted on my soul. Last one. This song is me. I wish I could start again every day. And I can tell you, those comments just kept going and going and going. I think they are describing a soul ache that is in all of us. A heavy burden of guilt for the wrong we have done. A deep-seated and lingering sense of regret for the hurt that we've caused others. A desperate longing to see it somehow, somehow made right, somehow dealt with. We've all felt that at some point. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're feeling it right now. It's why the song is so popular. It taps into something deep within each one of us. And it's not just a feeling. We are aching after something that is real, something that can be objectively measured. There's a journal called Frontiers in Psychology, and they published a study that documents the statistically proven health benefits of experiencing forgiveness. So the study has a number of findings. Let me just share a couple. People who have been forgiven enjoy lower levels of depression, lower levels of anxiety, of hopelessness, and of loneliness. People who have been forgiven also show improved levels of social integration, They age more successfully. They have a stronger sense of purpose. I'll read the conclusion of the study for you. This study provides novel evidence that forgiveness is positively related to several indicators of psychosocial well-being and inversely associated with psychosocial distress outcomes. That's just medical nerd speak for saying That when we long for forgiveness, we are longing for something that's actually there, something that's real, something that can be objectively, scientifically measured. Something we don't have that we desperately want because it's so good. And we've all felt that longing at some point in our lives. That's why the song is so popular. Did you notice how the video starts? It starts with the end of the world. Band are walking around in the rubble and the trash with gas masks on. It's the apocalypse. It's an artistic way of saying that our wrongdoing is not just a private affair. Our wrongdoing has very public social consequences. And if you take all of our wrongdoing together, we've messed up the world. The world was a beautiful place, but we have trashed it. We are responsible, and the consequences are serious. The the video ends with a nuclear explosion. It's a dramatic warning 
that something needs to change and soon for you, for me, in our private lives, but also for us as a, as a race, as a humanity. Somehow, we need to make good. We need to make right. We need to start again. How's that ever going to happen? Because I'm looking out, I'm not seeing naive people. I'm seeing people of experience. How are we going to make right and just start again? Well, the answer in the song comes in the form of a question. Can't I just turn back the clock? Forgive my sins? I just want to roll my sleeves up and start again. I know that I've messed it up time and time again. And so I just want to roll my sleeves up and start again. Is that going to do it? Is that going to work? Well, let's put it to the test. Think about someone in your own life who has hurt you deeply. Deeply. I'm sorry to take your mind to that painful place, but it's going to help us understand the problem we're facing. Someone who has really, really hurt you. And they come to you, and this is their proposal. Can't I just turn back the clock and forgive my sins? I just want to roll my sleeves up and start again. Now, at that point, you might have some questions of your own. How exactly are you going to do that? How are you going to turn back the clock? And are you going to forgive your own sins? And on what basis do I forgive you? What what does it mean for justice? What does it mean for what is right in the situation if I just forgive you? How is rolling up your sleeves going to make any difference whatsoever? What good are you going to do that's going to erase this wrongdoing? How does that work? How does this good erase what you've done? What's going to be enough? Those are legitimate questions, aren't they? And the answers are not obvious. The answers are not obvious. Many of us are going to come to the end of our lives without answers to those questions. We will die with regret because we just can't imagine how genuine forgiveness can possibly work. And if I can't forgive someone else on this one particular thing, this one act of wrongdoing, How can I possibly be forgiven for all the wrongdoing that I've done? Is that going to be you? The end of your days? You're going to face the end of your life with a hollow, hopeless sense of regret? Your page, as I mentioned, the leaflet on your seat is double-sided. You have the lyrics on the one side. If you turn it over... What we have on the other side is the history of two men in exactly this position. It's an historical record of two men facing their deaths, pondering their guilt. So let's, let's take a deep dive into the history. Look at verse 32, right at the top of that page. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. 
That word translated criminal is literally an evildoer. We don't know what their crime was. We don't don't have those particulars. What we do know for sure is that they were enemies of the Roman state. How do we know that? We know that by the way that they died. So here's, they died by crucifixion. And here's one historian's description of what crucifixion was and what it meant. Crucifixion was reserved by the Romans for those who resisted the authority of Roman occupation. Naked and fastened to a tree, stake, or cross, located typically at a major crossroads, the victim was subjected both to a particularly abhorrent form of capital punishment and to optimum savage ridicule. The corpse of the crucified was typically left on the tree to rot or as food for scavenging birds. In this way, the general populace was granted a somber reminder of the fate of those daring to assert themselves against Rome. Let me give you one more historical take on this from another historian. He puts it like this. Exposed to public view like slabs of meat hung from a market stall, no death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion. To be hung naked, long in agony, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, helpless to beat away the clamorous birds, such a fate, Roman intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. Even in peacetime, executioners would make a spectacle of their victims by suspending them in a variety of inventive ways. One, perhaps, upside down with his head towards the ground. Another, with a stake driven through his genitals. Another, attached by his arms to a yoke. The point is just this. Crucifixion was deliberately designed to humiliate and to shame. If any death was designed to bring out the natural regret that's going to come to all of us at death, it was crucifixion. Outside the city, stripped naked at some major intersection, deliberately exposed to public ridicule for hours and hours and hours on end. This death was designed to soak a person in every last regret of their lives. And no doubt it's how these two criminals in our historical record, no doubt it's how they felt. No doubt it's what they were experiencing. This is what their lives had come to. This is what all their hopes, dreams, joys, fears, this is what it all amounted to. This was their legacy. This is what they had achieved. How do you respond in that situation? None of us has the faintest clue until we're there. And by the grace of God, it's very unlikely. But we do have these two historical responses recorded for us. So let's consider them. The one response is to harden your heart. So you dig your heels in. You refuse to admit any guilt, take any responsibility. You lash out the world that is lashing you. We see that in the first criminal, verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us, mocking him. That's the one obvious response. But in verse 40, we have another. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since we are under the same sentence? That's interesting, isn't it? Just think about the psychology of that. 
Here's a man who's reached the very end of his life. Death is imminent. It's moments away. Society has passed its verdict on him. Society has executed the judgment on him. Society has thrown everything that society has to throw, and throw at this man. It's done its worst. He's already hanging from a Roman cross. What else is there? Surely there's nothing else to fear. There's nothing else left to fear. There's nothing more that can be done to this man. The first criminal's response makes sense. There's nothing else. So why not just lash out? Why not just hit back at this hateful world with hatred? Fight fire with fire. The last fire that you have before you burn out. That's not what the second criminal does. It's not his response. Somehow he realizes there is a judgment coming even more fearful than the one he's enduring, and he's enduring crucifixion. There is a judge who is not presiding just over this one particular act of evil, this one criminal offense. No, there is a judge who presides over every act of evil, every wrongdoing. He's the only reason we speak about right and wrong in the first place. He's the real problem behind our guilt. He's the real reason we need forgiveness. Don't you fear God? Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. The second criminal rebukes the first. He says, can't you see? Are you still so blind? Can't you see? The time for excuses and self-justifications and angry insults is over. We are dying. The time for games is over. We need to own the truth. We are guilty. We're getting what our deeds deserve. It's no one else's fault. But this man, don't you see, this man is different. This man has done nothing wrong. It's a strange verdict, isn't it? The criminal knows what guilt looks like. But in this man, he looks across and he sees only innocence. And what's even more striking is that the criminal is not the only one who sees it. Look at verse 47. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. The centurion. You see that? We have two verdicts coming from the complete polar opposite ends of the same legal system. The criminal can see the innocence. But so can the centurion. Both sides of the law, passing verdict, passing the same verdict. The prisoner and the prosecution, who better qualified to know the difference between guilt and innocence? From both sides of the legal system, they pass a verdict and it's the same verdict. This man has done nothing wrong. Now this man is, of course, Jesus the innocent dying with the guilty. One on his right, one on his left. The criminal looks across at the strange 
striking, arresting innocence of Jesus, and he sees something there that he can trust. And that something moves him to make his final request. The final request of his entire life. What's the last thing you're going to ask for? This is what he asks for. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We don't know exactly how much he understood. Those details are not shared with us. But from what he says, it's clear he knew enough to know that Jesus was a king of a kingdom that endures beyond this life. And Jesus responds to his request with what I think must be the most powerful and liberating words ever spoken. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What does it all mean? How do we understand these events? We need a little help because we are separated from them by thousands of years of history and thousands of miles of geography and whole worlds of culture. And that help actually comes to us in what happens next. So look at verse 44. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun had stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So you have the darkness and you have the curtain. I think they're the keys that are going to help us unlock the meaning of these events. If you have any Jewish friends, you'll know that every year they celebrate something called the Passover. It's just an annual reminder of how God judged the sin of Egypt when the angel of death descended and all of the firstborn sons of Egypt died. But the firstborn sons of Israel were passed over. That's why we call the festival Passover. They were passed over because of the blood of a spotless lamb that was sacrificed in their place. That blood was painted on the lintel of the door. And so they escaped the judgment. They lived under the protection of that blood. Now we need to bear in mind that the Passover was the tenth and final plague, the tenth and final judgment. There was, of course, a ninth judgment that ushered in the Passover. What was that ninth judgment? Darkness. Darkness. And so when darkness fell on the land, any attentive Jew would have known that Jesus, well, at least that Jesus' death is a great symbol, was a great symbol of God's judgment on sin. That's where their minds would have gone as the darkness descended. This is God's judgment on sin. That then implies that Jesus himself is the spotless lamb who dies in the place of sinners. That they might escape the angel of death. There is a great exchange taking place here. And it's taking place so that justice can be served and mercy granted. The innocence of Jesus for the guilt of the criminal. Jesus takes the judgment of God. The criminal gets the paradise of God. 
also that justice is served and mercy flows freely. Sweetest mercy. Perfect justice. Then the temple curtain tears in two and we know from other historical records that it tore from the top to the bottom implying that this is God's initiative to tear the temple curtain in two from top to bottom. Now the temple curtain separated it. The function of that curtain was to separate sinners from the holiness of God. But when Jesus dies, that curtain tears in two from top to bottom. What does that mean? It means that the death of Jesus opens the way. The death of Jesus wins access to God in all of his holiness. God is no less holy. He remains perfect in holiness. But the death of Jesus has opened the way for sinners to have free access to the God of holiness. Eddie prayed about it this morning. What king can we approach with such freedom? And of course, the thing that blocked the way wasn't really the curtain. Curtains can be pulled aside. That curtain symbolizes the thing that really blocked the way. Your sin. My sin. All of our wrongdoing. Because remember, when we do wrong to someone else, we are always doing wrong against God himself. How can that be? Well, firstly, in the first place, that person, this person that we are wronging, belongs to God. He made her. She is his. You wrong her, you wrong him. Secondly, God is the one who decides what right and wrong are in the first place. The categories belong to him. Right and wrong is his jurisdiction. Any breach of right, any wrongdoing, is an offense against him. If you touch someone with a burning coal, what's going to happen? You're going to burn them. Why? Because that's how God has designed the universe. If you act selfishly, what's going to happen? You will hurt someone. Why? Because that's how God has designed the universe. He has designed it to run on love. Not on self-interest. And so self-interest hurts. It burns. To bring all of this together, the darkness and the temple curtain are telling us that Jesus, this innocent man, died for the guilty to deal with guilt, to win access to God. What does any of that have to do with you? The wonderful news is that he didn't just do it for the criminal on his right, the criminal next to him. He did it for anyone who will take an honest look at their guilt and take an honest look at the death that is coming to all of us like a steam train and cry out, Jesus, remember me. question is, how can he do it? How can it be done? How can he stand in for the guilt of the criminal, let alone your guilt, my guilt, the guilt of the world? 
Back to the top, verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You see, this is not just a good man, a noble man, a self-sacrificial man, a tragic hero, a philanthropist. This is someone who can call God Father. This is the Son of God the Father. Now, what does that mean? It means that God himself has stepped forward to intervene, to deal with the crisis of our guilt. Let me ask you a personal question. What would be enough to pay for all of your moral debts? If you run a quick catalog of them. And of course, here's the problem. I'm not just talking about the things you can remember. Or I can remember. I'm talking about all of it. Every harsh word. Every petty, prideful act of selfishness. Every opportunity to be kind that you've ignored. Every dark thought. Every false comment. All of it. All of it. All the muck. All of the betrayal. Everything. I hope it's clear that for, for all of us here, for any of us here, rolling up your sleeves to start again as a strategy for dealing with our guilt is a sad joke. Whether you are just an ordinary law-abiding citizen, like I'm sure the vast majority of us here this morning, or whether you are a criminal on death row, Rolling up your sleeves to start again as a strategy for dealing with your guilt is pitiful. We can't turn back the clock. We can't. And even if we could, whatever we did once we got there, would it be enough? Wouldn't be enough. So what would be enough? Only God himself. The categories of right and wrong belong to him. Everyone in this room belongs to him. Everyone that you have wronged belongs to him. Only he can make it right. And brothers and sisters, that's what we have in Jesus. He came. He lived a life of pure love. And then he gave that life of perfect innocence and goodness to pay for your lifetime of compromises and mixed motives. That and only that is enough. It takes the blood of God to wash away the sins of the world. Nothing else is rich enough to pay the debt. Nothing else. I was once talking to a man who had ruined his marriage, his family, must be said his life with multiple affairs and he was just crushed by the guilt and he was saying to me there's nothing I can do to make this right and I said to him that's true that's true but what if Jesus hung on a cross 
to make it right. And he melted into tears. And many, many people sitting here this morning have wept the same tears. And those tears are bittersweet. It's the bitterness of seeing the horror of our sin for what it is. You look at Jesus on that cross. We heard about what crucifixion is. You look at Jesus on that cross, you see your sin there. It's horrific, it's bitter. But it's the sweetness of knowing that he did that to save us from our sin. To free us from our guilt. And he has done it. It is finished. The price has been paid in full. Full and final payment. One republic want to turn back the clock and start again. It's either that or we're headed for nuclear holocaust. The wonderful news for us this morning is that Jesus has taken the apocalypse on himself. He has taken the darkness on himself. All of the guilt, all of the shame, all of the judgment. Why? So that we can have paradise. That which was rightfully his, he gives away. So that we might have it. And when Jesus is talking about paradise, when he says paradise, he isn't talking about a nightclub or a beachcomber hotel on Mauritius. He's talking about the garden of God. Now we know that the Bible, in the Bible, it all starts in the garden of God. That's where it all begins. Humanity is there at peace. We would walk with God in the cool of the day. Freely, openly, without any shame. Everything was beautiful and good and fresh and right and as it should be. If we really want to turn back the clock and go back there. If you really want to be forgiven in a way that doesn't pervert justice or make light of the hurt that you have caused. The suffering that you've caused. If you, if you really want to end the isolation and the alienation and the lonely regret that comes with the wrong that you have done. If you truly, truly want to start again, you can. You can. Jesus has made a way. Just ask him. Like that criminal on that cross who had nothing to offer, nothing to give. No options. He simply threw himself on the mercy of God. He turned to Jesus and pleaded with him. Jesus, and this can be your plea this morning. Jesus, take me into your kingdom. We can ask him right now. If you want to be set free from the burden of your guilt, if you want to be right with God and you want it this morning, then just pray these words with me. They should be on the screen behind me. I want you to see them so that you know what you're praying. Take a moment just to reflect on those words and then I'm going to lead us in that prayer together. And you can make that prayer your own. Pray it in the quiet of your own heart. Let's pray.
Dear Father God, I know, I confess that I am guilty. There are no excuses. And there's no way to make it right, to make good, to pay the debt. Father, I thank you this morning that Jesus has paid for me. Please forgive me. Please will you accept me as your child. I can only plead with you in the name of Jesus and because of his sacrifice. Please hear my prayer. Amen.